All right. So we're in the epistle of John, not to be confused with the gospel of John. Um, the apostle John has written this letter. He's actually written three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, which are just a chapter long are those. This one has five chapters in it. So all in all, John has got seven chapters in his epistles, which I think is pretty funny because he loved the number seven. Uh, the Apostle John also has written the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John, or the Gospel according to John, okay? Um, John was known as the Apostle of Love. Um, he outlived all the other disciples. You remember the story in, um, in the Gospels where Peter was inquiring about who was going to live the longest. And uh, the Lord referenced John, that John will not die. Now, we know that John did pass away in his late 90s, but what John did do is he survived persecution. He survived an execution in hot oil. Um, the Roman emperors tried to boil him alive in oil, and he miraculously survived. Um, he was exiled to Patmos, um, and he miraculously survived that as well. So everything these emperors tried to do to the Apostle John, God miraculously preserved him. And so, you know, I, I kind of think that might have been what Jesus was talking about when he said he shall not see death. In other words, he, not, he shall not see the death that comes by man. Amen. And he didn't. John died of natural causes and he lived a ripe old age. And John, when he was old, his eyes were dim and he could not see. And they carried him around. And in his old age, when John would enter the church, he would just be known to say, love one another, children. Love one another, children. Love one another, children. And that's all he used to tell the church. Love one another, dear children. And so he was known as the apostle of love. If John was known as the apostle of love, I would reckon that Paul would be known as the apostle of faith. And Peter would probably be known as the apostle of hope. We have faith, hope, and love, a triple bound cord that's not easily broken. Those are the three fundamental truths of our Christian walk. Our Christianity is based on faith, hope, and love. Amen. And the scripture tells us, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. So. So John is known for his writings about love. When John picks up this letter, which was written in the latter part of his life, probably in, in the, somewhere around A.D. 90, something like that, they reckon that this letter was penned. So John was in his, he, he was in his uh, late, late in life. And one of the things that was going on, the church had been going for about, what, a hundred years or so, maybe, well, you know, 30 AD, you know, what, 70 years? And it didn't take long. Within under a hundred years, the church was already suffering false doctrine. You've heard me teach before, there was a terrible doctrine called Gnosticism, Gnosticism that was creeping in the church. Gnosticism comes from 
the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And one of the things that you can always, you know, I like to say you can sniff out false religion or cults. There are two distinctive, well, there's probably more than two, but the two that I like to zero in on, there are two distinctive things that you can identify false religion and cults. Number one, it is a works-based religion. It's it, Everything is based by works. They're motivated by works. Um, you know, the Mormon church, they are geared up towards works. They have to go on those two-year missions, and it is required. If they don't do it, they are considered not of the faith. It is a works thing. Um, you know, Islam, the five pillars of Islam, if you as a, as a Muslim cannot make it down to Mecca and do the different things that you have to do, you're an inferior to their religion. Um, you know, so there's a lot of these different false religions out there that are motivated by works. All right. The other thing you can tell a false religion by or a cult is that it has this this kind of air of secrecy about it, kind of like the Masons or the Masonic Lodge. There is there is a you know, you have to to go to a higher level. You have to come in on the inside. You have to be part of the, you know, the inside crowd. You know, this is where the real knowledge is at. And so everything is kind of based around secrecy, and it's a privilege to know certain things. Um, and that's what the Gnostics were about. They, they, were, they were all about promoting themselves and trying to set themselves apart from others as if they had the higher revelation. And as if you got, as you came in on the inside, then you could reach a higher level of redemption and things like that. Um, you do see some of that in our false religions today. Um, there are different layers of, of, of society in Mormonism, you know, different, different levels that you can reach. And you're going to see that when John speaks in this letter, he diffuses all of that, okay? And there is, so that was kind of prevalent in the day that John was writing this letter. All right, praise God. Well, let's start off in the first verse there of chapter 1. John writing to the church, reading out of the King James Version, says, Now that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested... And we have seen it, and we bear witness, and show it unto you, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. All right, so John starts off in that which was from the beginning. Now, there are three famous chapters in the Bible that contain the word beginning. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, that's John. What about Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
If you can, just flip there with me real quick. That's an easy one to find, Genesis 1-1, right in the front of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Say amen when you're there. And I'm turning you here so you can mark these in your Bible. You can refer to them later. (coughs) Excuse me. All right. Notice there where it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God is not trying to prove his existence. He never has. The Bible always assumes that God was. There's no origins of God because God always has been. So when the first chapter of Genesis begins to speak about creation, it starts off as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there is lots of debates between scientists on how old the earth was. Some of them believe in a young earth. Some believe in an old earth. Some believe that the earth was created literally in six days. Some believe in the um, in what's called the gap theory or the chaotic um, fall, where before like, there's a, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, period. And then the earth became formless and void. The actual Hebrew word there is became. So some people teach that, there was a there was this world before between verses one and two. Some people believe in that. That's what's called the gap theory. A lot of your Baptists, your dispensationalist teachers um, teach that. All right. Some people like Kenneth Ham and uh, the creationists that are out there believe that the Earth was created in literally a six days. Some people are scientists are gonna they're not gonna be in agreement about this ever. And you know what? That's okay. Because that's not what we have to be in agreement about. Amen. The Bible's not a science book. It's not a textbook. The Bible is a, is a, an instruction manual for man about what he needs to live a successful, happy, peaceful life. Amen. It's an instruction manual for our relationship with our Creator. Praise God. You know, like you've heard me say before, if you was to go out here and buy a brand new Honda, you'd reach in that glove compartment and there'd be a manual from the manufacturer telling you everything about that car and what you need to know. How to operate it correctly, when to change the tires, when to get the services and all that. Everything you need to own and operate that car is in that manual. Well, everything you need to own and operate your life is in this book right here in your hands. All right. The Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Amen. That's what it is. Basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what the Bible is. Now, God says in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. So we see the first beginning of the Bible is the creation of the heavens and earth. All right, the next chapter, um, go to the first chapter of John. This is our next chapter for the beginning. So we have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the gospel of John chapter 1, say amen when you're there. 
Gospel of John, John 1.1. 1, 1. And this is a, I mean, everybody, every Christian had to have this verse memorized. I'm sure most of you do. You know, John was a wordsmith. Do you know what I mean by that? He used words very creatively, and he was consistent in his word use. He loved to use words in a certain way. And um, because John had a revelation of the logos of God. Logos is the Greek word for word. What is logos? You do not know who I am until I express myself my thoughts are translated through my words. My words reveal or are as the gateway for me and you to have a relationship. Amen. You know, don't you hate it when you walk into a room and nobody says anything? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Because we have relationships with each other through our words. Um, logos is the communicated thought. All right. And so... It's interesting, John having a revelation of how powerful words are, how he specifically used words and crafted them in the way to convey his message. Um, John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, he didn't, he didn't do it in a, chrono, uh, in a chronological order. He didn't put every miracle down. He actually said if he was to try to write everything that Jesus did while he was on earth for three years, the books of the world could not contain it. But what John did is he took seven miracles. He took seven sermons. He took different important things in people's lives just so we may know that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? And so, in the uh, chapter 1, it says, this is the other beginning, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. So back in Genesis 1-1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, who was back there with God? The Word was back there. Amen? The Word was back there. All right. Now, back over to the Epistle John. So, we have the Word in John 1.1. Now, we're going back over to the Epistle. 1 John 1.1. Now, and there he goes, he says, now that which, that which was from the beginning, well, what was from the beginning? And who else was from the beginning, according to Genesis 1-1? God. So that which, or God, which was from the beginning, we have heard. Who have we heard? We've heard God. We've heard the word. That which we have seen with our eyes. And that which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. 
So John here is saying, hey, we have seen God. We've heard God. And we've seen him. We've seen him with our eyes. But notice here where he says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Now that word looked upon is a word where we get our, the Greek word where we get our word theater, it actually means to gaze upon with purpose or to regard with admiration. You know, when you go to the cinema or you are watching a theater, your eyes are fixed on the stage. Your eyes are fixed upon what's happening. You're, you're not just looking at something, you're intently following it with purpose and you're taking in the message. That's what, that's what John is saying here. When Jesus was on the earth, yeah, they saw Jesus, but they also looked upon Jesus. Remember when Peter was going into the temple and he says, he said to the guy who was asking for alms, what did he say? Look upon us. Fix your eyes upon us. In other words, be, um, you know, gaze with a purpose. Be focused. And that's what we're to do. When we're to come, when we sit before the word of God, we're to gaze upon the word of God. Amen. You know, we're not to be distracted. Have you ever tried to watch two television programs at the same time? Yeah, it's mass confusion. It's terrible. Or, you know, we'll be trying to watch TV and the girls will have something on their phone and it's kind of over here and you're trying to watch it. It's just chaotic. You can't do two things. That's why I'm a proponent of still, let's carry around the leatherback. I mean, I know we got electronic versions and stuff here and I'm not condemning those. But I have found for myself, when I try to have a Bible study with my phone, I, my study is distracted by the different things that pop up on my phone. So-and-so's doing this. So-and-so's doing this. You get an alert for this, an alert for that. Da, 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 da. And, and it's hard to gaze upon the word. Because as you're gazing upon the word, other things are distracting. And you know another thing I find distracting from gazing upon a word? No offense, but I find study Bibles distracting. Study Bibles distract from gazing upon the word. What am I talking about? The words of God are inspired, not the notes of man. You know, I remember my dad used to always tell me, he said, son, all scripture is given by inspiration, not all notes. And what I find about a study Bible, which they're good to have. But when it comes time to gaze upon the word of God, to look intently in his word, The little cross-reference letters, the little Bible notes, those things can be distracting from just soaking and taking in just the rhema word of God because that word is God-breathed and we're God-breathed and that's what will revive the soul. The commentaries are great. They're good for information, but we can't live on information. We have to live on revelation. Amen? Amen? We must live on illumination of God's word. And there's nothing more satisfying than having the scripture leap up off the page. And then you go to another place and, oh, I can see where that goes together with that. Amen. You see what I'm saying? So I just encourage you guys to, um, to have that Bible, have that place 
where you can gaze upon the uh, the Lord. You know, God knows we need more um, gazing with a purpose in God's word than all the distractions and all the streaming services that we have today. I mean, I don't know about you, but do you feel like there is just such a uh, a battle for our time now? I mean, I cannot believe how you can just get lost in, you know, 10 hours of, of Netflix. You, people just watch, binge watch. Have you heard of that phrase where they're binge watch? You know, or they create a show hole where you've ran out of shows to watch? You know, just binge watching where people are taking whole seasons and just watching them straight through. <coughs> there is definitely a battle for our time. And there's loads of distractions out there now, no doubt about it. But they didn't have Netflix when John wrote this Bible. You know, when Jesus came onto earth, he said, they looked upon him. I like this too, he says, and our hands have handled. In other words, we've touched him. He wasn't just this mysterious phantom. This ghost, this mystic, he was a physical man that they actually touched. And it reminds me of that part where Thomas, when he said, they said, the Lord has risen. And Thomas said, I don't believe you. He said, unless I touch him, unless I put my hand, my fingers in the holes of his hand and touch the wound of his side. I will not believe it's the Lord. And so the Lord appeared and he said, Thomas, look at my hands. Touch my, he said, touch me. Even in his resurrection, he said, touch me, Thomas. So that's what John was there in that room. So they touched Jesus. They touched the Lord. John put his face Upon the chest of the Lord at the Last Supper, when he was being betrayed, before his resurrection. Before his resurrection, he would have his hand on the Lord's chest. Hearing his heartbeat, feeling his breath. After the resurrection, they're they're sitting with the Lord. They see him, his physical body. We've handled the word of life, he says. The word was made flesh and dwelt among men so that they would have as much proof of his personal existence as they had of any other person in their midst. You know, when he says we have heard, it says we have absolute certainty of the reality of what we proclaim. We have actually heard, seen and touched him. Not transiently, but frequently. We lived with him daily for years. We heard his teaching and saw his divine works. Verse 2. For that life was manifested and we have seen it. John loves this word manifested. He uses it all the time. The word manifested means... To show openly. You know, this thing wasn't done in a corner, is what is said in one of the books. You know, when he talked about the crucifixion 
of Jesus Christ. He said, this thing wasn't done in a corner, but it was done publicly. It was manifested. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the man from Nazareth, was manifested openly to the nations. It wasn't something done in a secret cave somewhere where one, where you have to believe on just one guy's testimony that I have seen God and I have met with an angel and this is what he's given me. Well, where did that all take place? Oh, it took place in this cave over yonder. Oh, yeah, well, who was there with you? Oh, nobody, just me. Just me in the cave and the angel. Oh, really? The things that we put our trust in were not manifested like that. They were manifested openly, not secretly. And that's why we can have confidence. He says, we have seen it and we bear witness and we show unto you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested unto us. Now, I'm just so thankful that Jesus commissioned John back in the Great Commission to go and make disciples teaching them all the things that I commanded you. Because had Jesus not told John that, we would not have verse 2 there. You know, if it would have been left up to man's devices, he would have probably tried to make some secret club out of this. You know, men love their secret clubs. But this was not to be kept secret. Verse 3, now that which we have seen and heard. Now, look how many times he has said that. He has used the word seen three times in three verses. He is a credible eyewitness. Amen. He's a credible eyewitness. We can believe these things that these men have seen. One of the reasons why we can believe what they've seen and what they testify of is because they love not their lives even unto death. They were willing to give up their lives for what they believed. Amen? Amen. So that you might sit here today and have this testimony in your hand. These men, along with other men long after them, have given up their own lives that we might have this. And so he says, we have seen it, (coughs) excuse me, and heard and declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. Amen. Amen. See, John doesn't, he wants us to be part of the club. He wants us to be part of the family. He wants us to have fellowship. The word fellowship there is all things in common. All right. Um, that word there, konania, I believe is me, it might have to pronounce it. Um, it means to have all things in common. You know, to have fellowship, to be part of a community, to be equal. John's not trying to set himself higher than us here. He wants us to be equal with the revelation that God gave him, the things that he has seen, the things that he has heard, the things that he has touched. He wants us to experience that. That you also may have fellowship, verse 3, with us. And this is it. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, 
Jesus Christ. Amen. What does he say there? Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. You know, there's a lot of people out there that say that they have fellowship with the Father, that they have fellowship with the Son, but they're liars. They don't have the fellowship. And John's going to give us some example. He's going to give us some stuff here that lets us see why they're not part of that fellowship. All right. So verse 4 says, Now these things we write unto you, that your joy may be full. All right? There's a... (coughs) There are a few things here. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry, I keep coughing on you guys. There's a few things here that... um, that John always emphasizes, I write unto you so that. And um, in this one here, he says, I write unto you that your joy may be full. Now look over at, um, so that's in verse 4 of verse 1. I write unto you that your joy may be full. Now look over at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, These things I write unto you that you sin not. All right? And then later, he over in chapter 5, he says, um, Chapter 5... Thank you. These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, so three things. One, I'm writing these things so that your joy may be full. Number two, I'm writing these things so that you sin not. Number three, I'm writing these things so that you will have an assurance of your salvation. Which one? The to chapter 5, verse 13. <clears throat> All right, so that's chapter 5, verse 13. So, assurance of salvation, fullness of joy, and that we walk not in sin. All right? Those are the purposes of this book. What is joy? Is joy happiness? No. No. Happiness comes from the word happenings. What's happening? What's happening is what's happening out here. Happenstance. Your circumstances around you create happiness. Right? But joy comes from the inside. Joy is really what people are looking for. When there's that emptiness, how did this one guy say it? He said, joy fills the emptiness of life, right? And love fills the loneliness of life. Joy is part of the essence of God. It's part of Him. It is. So if you have joy, a lot of people are trying to find the emptiness, fill, filling the void of life, that emptiness, with material things or with material relationships. 
I know you guys, just like me, did this for years before we came to know Christ. You know, that was one of the things that I love most about finding Jesus or him finding me. You know, people say, I found God and I didn't know God was lost. God found me, amen. I was the one that was lost. You know, Jesus found me. He rescued me, amen. And, um, And one of the things that I love about Jesus rescuing me is he has filled my heart with joy. And no matter what's going on out here, there's a fulfillment and there's a, there's a, my, the inside of me is full. Amen. The inside of you is full because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Um, (coughs) the joy is a spiritual thing. It is a spiritual thing. It's not something that can be bought. It's not something that can be given by another human being. Another human being cannot bring joy. Jesus brings joy. Jesus overwhelms you. Joy. Jesus overwhelms you. Joy. Jesus overwhelms you. That's what joy is. Being overwhelmed by Jesus. It's a deep, rich fruit that just nothing can replace the joy of the Lord. All hell can be breaking loose in your life. Your kids could be going off in a thousand different directions. Your bills can be stacked up on your desk. Your car could be broke down on I-275 somewhere. But with the joy of the Lord, those things don't bother you. They just don't bother you. Because joy connects to the eternal. Joy goes past earthly temporal things and it reaches into eternity and says, this too shall pass. Amen. Beans on toast today, but this too shall pass. (laughs) Steak dinner's coming. Praise God. God placed eternity in our heart. That's right. So... And I like it that he says, I write these things unto you that your joy may be what? Full. God doesn't want us going around on an eighth a tank of joy. How many run their cars till the fuel light comes on? And you know, man, you know, you got when that when that light comes on, boy, you got about 18 miles, 20. You know how many miles you got. Well, a lot of people like to run their joy like that. You know, you don't, God wants us to run on a full tank of joy. I heard one mechanic tell me that your car actually runs better on a full tank because it doesn't put as much pressure on the fuel pump. That if you, if you run your car on, on an eighth of a tank on empty all the time, it causes the mechanics to work harder to, to get, to get that fuel to the engine. You know what I mean? It's crazy. So God wants us on a full tank of joy. Praise God. Now, now this is interesting then. You say, well, how can my joy be full, Jeremy? What did John say? These things write we unto you. These things that we have written. The word of God, man. You talk about replenishing your joy. Because remember, when you read the word, you are 
you are with Jesus. Jesus is the word. Amen. That's what it says. He's the word of God. This is the word of God. All right. Now. I'm just going to get a little bit on. I'm going to I'm going to build a small a small um, soapbox here. It's not going to be very big. I promise. Okay. But I am going to step on a very small soapbox here. Because this is dear to my heart. It's very important that we have as Christians our Bible, the, the, the inspired Word of God that has been faithfully translated from generation to generation to us. The paraphrases... All the different commentaries, you know, you got the Message Bible, Eugene Peterson, you got a couple of others that have come out. Those are great, but those are what the those are not the Word of God. That is a paraphrase. That is man's, he is expounding on or interpreting into a, a common modern kind of adjectives and languages that he's using to expand that story. Okay, and the reason why this is so important is because the word of God is what will change you. My wife and I were listening to a teacher and she said that she was amazed when she was teaching a Bible college, how some of these students who would have some of these contemporary versions of the Bible always were very emotional in their walk with the Lord. They were very unsteady. They were always up and down, up and down, up and down. But the ones that would read the, the authorized version, the word of God, they were very fixed in their faith. And I was like, man, can that be, Lord? Can, you, can somebody's faith actually grow stronger by reading one version over another? Something to think about. It's important. It's the words... Of God that are inspired. God inspires His Word. Now, if that's true, then these things that are written is what makes our joy full. Alright? So when you read your Bible, it will fill your tank with joy. Sometimes I come home, I can't even get through the door before Catherine is just, just going nuts because of something she found in the Bible. Now, it says here in verse 5, this then is the message then which we have heard of him. All right? So here it is. This is the message. I think it's you're waiting for some deep, deep truth. Some real deep mystical truth coming up here. He says, this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Notice that, at all. In him is no darkness at all. One verse says that God, in him dwells no darkness, there's no shadow of turning. I like that because no matter, there's no shadow. You know, if there's no shadow of turning, it means that the light is not shining on the object the object is the light. That's right. Amen. Amen? Amen? The object is the light. And he is the light. Amen? That's why there's no shadow of turning. Because he's not here in the light sources this way. No. 
because then there'd be a shadow. But there's no shadow because he is the light. Amen. Amen. He is the light. Now, you know, God is light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, what? Let there be light. And then what did he do? He divided the light from the darkness. It says darkness was on the face of the earth and God said, let there be light. I believe what the Lord was saying there is let there be a revelation of himself in the earth. Because in chapter in um, later on in the chapter, that's when he says he put for signs great lights. You know, the sun and the moon came later on. When he said, let there be light, that's not when he made the sun. Okay. For instance, if you look at the sun, when you look at the sun, are you seeing the sun? But when you look at the sun, what are you seeing? Are you actually seeing the physical sun? No, you're seeing the light of the sun. The sun is here and what we're catching is the light. All right. There, the element of light is what I'm getting at here. When God said, let there be light, he was saying, let there be light. Let there be this thing that is greater than darkness. Let there be this thing that when you turn light on, darkness goes away. Amen. We can turn out all these lights. And when we go to turn the light on, we don't see the light going, oh, man, I just can't bust through this darkness. I just can't get through it. No, the light immediately extinguishes the darkness. The darkness immediately goes away. That is a physical thing. Light is stronger than darkness. God made that in the beginning. When God said, let there be light and there was light, he divided the light from the darkness. God always wanted light to be stronger. Okay? Then later, he, div- he makes the sun and the moon, which were lights, okay, that were going to be used for seasons and for calendars. They gave light, but what did they give? They gave what he already created in the beginning, all right? So light, you always see that John, when he talks about the light, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. In other words, the light is not only just something that is, is used to see, but light also is, speaks of purity. Light also speaks of the opposite of ignorance. Okay? Um, if you have light, you have knowledge. If you have ignorance, you have darkness. Okay? That's why they called it the dark ages. Because it was a time of ignorance. There wasn't much happening in human history. That's why it was known as the Dark Ages, because there wasn't a lot of light going on. There wasn't a lot of light going on spiritually, that's for sure. <clears throat> but there wasn't a whole lot of light going on as far as man discovering new things. Okay? And then you have, um, you know, the uh, the Renaissance and all that stuff. And then that's when people but started to discover new things. But what I find amazing is, is most of the time when there was great discoveries from the human race, it was when man was drawing closer 
to their creator. As man got closer to God, got closer to the light, then he began to discover greater things about the world around him. Amen? Praise God. Um, Now, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Praise God. Did you have a question over there? Loving one, where I've heard people say, mm. the love of God swallows up darkness. Amen. Using the word swallowed up, would, I mean, it just, it's such a strong word that um, light swallows up darkness. It does, man. It, it just has no place. That's right. I mean, it just shows the validity and the power mm-hmm. and a strong love of God that, that it, it, it stands. Amen. Just the way I've heard different people say it, and it just made my heart do a flip. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, amen. Hey, that reminds me. Let's go over to back over to John's Gospel, chapter 1. All right. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Say amen when you're there. All right, John's Gospel, chapter 1. Now it says, verse 3, All things were made by Him. Made by who? Made by the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus is the Word. Who is Jesus? God. God. Amen. Now, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. What gives men life? What does it say there? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay? So, it was the life that was the light of men. When men walk in light... There is a life about them. When man walks in darkness, there is a death about them. All right? You can see it. I know when I was walking in darkness, there was... I remember one time when I was still trying to get my act together, and I was living with my, with my dad, and I was trying to get my heart right with the Lord and, and stuff, and I went up to Detroit... And when I went up to Detroit, I started looking up some old friends. And so, you know, you go to the clubs and, you know, you do, you do what you do when you go to those dark places, man. And when I came home, instantly, my father told me, he said, Son, you look like you have a black cloud over your face. There was a, there was a darkness on my countenance that was not there before I left. You know, there is a walking in darkness is not, it's a spiritual thing. But there is a, there is something, there's something very supernatural about it. And he knew the moment I walked in the door that I had been in darkness. You know, the thing, the thing about light that is so revealing is, or that, the thing about light that's powerful is that it reveals. Light reveals. Have you ever noticed how when you are trying to examine something 
and you take it outside and you put it in the sun, it's it. You can see the flaws much. There's something about sunlight. I mean, sunlight reveals flaws better than any light that man has come up with. If you just to take something and stick it under that light bulb there, that will not reveal truth like sunlight will. Amen. I mean, it is a revealer of things. The light reveals things. Do you remember when you used to go clubbing and it'd be at the end of the night and they'd turn on the lights in the club? And you'd see stuff on the walls and on the floor and you'd see you'd see stuff about people and you're like, whoa, man, what just happened here? You know, because why? All that darkness was extinguished and it was light was turned on. And what came? Truth came. What was revealed is what was really there. You know, and what wasn't there. You know, and so the the darkness, dark, and it's funny, the world always likes it dark. Everything that's bad that happens always happens in the dark. You know, it always happens when it's, they don't want the light. They just want it closed. Close the blinds. Turn them lights down. Crazy. So he says, the life was the light of men. So if in him was life and the life was the light of men, then Jesus is what lights us up. You know, I used to think that, uh, what was her name, Debbie Boone? You light up my life. She wasn't talking about a human being. Debbie Boone was talking about Jesus. You light up my life. Remember that song? Some of you remember that song. Yeah. Vaguely. You light up my life, man. Old Debbie Boone. I remember that song when I was seven years old. That song made it on pop radio. That was, that was, that was the jam back in the day. That was the love song. But I think it was a song to Jesus. So, Now, look at verse 5, he says there, and we're still in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It says, Now the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. All right? Now, you may think that that word comprehend means it didn't understand it. Comprehension test, right? But actually, a good translation there for comprehended is the darkness cannot extinguish it. The darkness can't put it out. It says, the light shines in darkness and the darkness cannot put it out. Um, The word, the Greek word there is, um, boy, I always get in trouble when I try to say these words. I'll give it a shot. Catalabano. I feel like I'm doing the limbo. La bomba. Catalabano. Catalabano. To seize upon. To keep down. To stop. Or to catch up with, in a sense of, to discover or detect. All right? It means the satanic powers of darkness did not overcome the world, but the world spoiled them on the cross, according to Colossians chapter 2. So, Jesus, who is the light, shines in darkness. The darkness comprehends it not. And then, verse 14 The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, 
the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Amen. In verse 9, that was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Is it? I mean, what a heartbreaker. What a heartbreaker. You would think that the world would openly receive Jesus because you would think that creation would say, this is the, this is the person who made us. We want to follow him. This is the person who made us. This is the one that gave us life. No, they want to try to man's fall is that he always wants to be his own boss. He wants to be God or he wants to be in charge. He doesn't, he doesn't want to give the glory to God for his creation. And that is a big mistake. What's even worse here, though, is where it says he came unto his own, in talking about Israel, he came unto the Jew, and they did not receive him. So he came into the world that he made, and then they narrowed it even further. He came into his own family, his own race of people, and they did not receive him. Right there in that one verse, we have the salvation for the Jew and the Gentile. Amen. Amen. Now, back over to our letter here. First epistle of John. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. You're going to find a few things here in this letter where John is always saying things like this. If you say this and do this, this is what happens. I used to hate it as a child when my parents would always tell me, do as I say and not as I do. (coughs) That's very hard. Do as I say, not as I do. We're going to find here that the Apostle John, he doesn't believe in that. John is a firm believer that what you say and what you do are two different things. And he's more interested in what you do than what you say. If we say that we have fellowship with him, in other words, what is the fellowship? John said that our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And he said, we want you to have that same fellowship. So that same intimate relationship that John had with the Father and with the Son is available to us. He wants us to have it. But if we say that we have that communion with God and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So what does it mean if we walk in darkness? Well, If we get right with God, stop sinning, stop, you know, doing the things that you know is wrong. But remember, also darkness refers to if light is truth, then darkness is what? 
lies or false doctrine or things that are not true or ignorance, okay? So he could also be saying, if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we walk in false doctrines, like for instance, they believed that Jesus was not God back then. They believed Jesus was just another man. They believed Jesus was, you know, not divine. The Muslims believe in Jesus. They just don't believe he's God. The Jehovah Witnesses believe in Jesus. They just believe he's the brother of Lucifer. But Jesus, if he made all things, then that means he made Lucifer, right? It says Jesus made all things earlier on. So if Jesus made all things, how can he be the brother of a created being? Because what's happening here in the, in the shift is eventually, as time goes on, they're going to put it, twist the tables to where Lucifer is the Messiah and Jesus is the He's the counterfeit. That's what eventually is, going, is, 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 is taking place. But, you know, it's a slow turn. You know, you just, it, it takes a long time to move these things around. I mean, those of you that are 70, I mean, those of you, you can, I mean, Brother Lee, Doris, gosh, Dan, Gladys, I mean, some of the things, the changes that you've seen in, in life today, can you believe it? I mean, when you think about how the world has gone and the things that we accept now, it's just, yeah, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? To what we have today, the standards that are today compared to the standards. Now take that, startling, take that and what about a hundred years from now? That's in your lifetime. What will the standards be like 100 years from now if the Lord tarries? You see, that's only in one lifetime. You ever watch Pride and Prejudice? Anybody ever see Pride and Prejudice, that good old classic British? uh, If you guys haven't seen Pride and Prejudice, Prejudice, you are missing out. Pride and Prejudice is is a novel on TV about courtship between men and women. And it is amazing how men and women would court in what era of time was that, honey? Was that like 1600s, 1700s? 18, 1800s. So just, you know, 200 years ago, how men and women would interact with each other is just unbelievable how men and women act and interact with each other now. It's just, it's crazy. Did you have a comment or a question over here? Yep. And over the years, it's going to take you completely away from God. So it only takes a tiny little bit away from the Word to take you down that wrong path. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's why you have to look at the Word daily and you have to study it. And I felt like I needed to share that. That's good, man. It's been about a year since he passed. Mm. What was his name? Uh, Tad Lauren. Tad Lauren. All right. Yeah, if you figure out just, just a degree... You know, I mean, we, you know, in aviation, they have what's called a heading, and it's based on a 360-degree circle. And, you know, if, they, if, they, if the air traffic controlman tells you to 
bear a heading of 285. So you're going 285, but you decide, eh, well, you know, I feel like 285.8 will be okay. So you're off a tick, you know, 0.8 clicks. He told you to go 285. Well, you know, 10 miles down the road, when you're off a few, you're not going to be where you're supposed to be. You'll probably wind up running into another plane because you're not exactly in the right heading. Amen. So, and so like he's saying, (coughs) so this could mean if we walk in darkness, if we walk in sin, it could mean if we walk in things that are not true, if we walk in false doctrine, um, we lie and do not the, what? Truth, you see. You're going to find that John doesn't really have, well, you're going to find that God doesn't have a problem. Sin has been taken care of, okay? I think now, more than anything, you know, I've got to be careful how I phrase my words here. The penalty of sin has been paid for. The penalty for your sin and my sin was dealt with on the cross. Amen. God is not going around always looking at our sin. And I don't think John is. I don't think John is in this letter. When you read this letter in context, he's not trying to go around saying, you know, better stop sinning, better stop sinning, better stop sinning. He's pretty, he's pretty, he, you know, we're going to get to the, my favorite verse here in just a minute. He pretty much tells you how to deal with sin here in just a second. It's a very easy principle. And he doesn't spend too much time on it because it's that easy. I personally feel what he's talking about when he says darkness is because he mentions it. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. In other words, we're not walking in truth. So walking in darkness We'll be walking in in false doctrine, false things about Christ, okay? And you got to watch yourself, church, because there are some crazy doctrines about Christ, about his reign coming into this age. Is it something new? No. It's been going on since the beginning. It's nothing new. It just has a different bow on it. Same package, different bow. You know, and that's all it is. So then here in verse 7, I'm almost done here. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And look at this. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All right. So you can see, I mean, it's kind of going back and forth there. It could be darkness, which means truth, darkness, which is sin, because then he says in verse 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from sin. So how do we have fellowship with one another? Keep it under the blood. Keep it under the blood. Plead the blood. Because look at verse eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, so... 
you're going to find the Bible says the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Who could know it? We're always deceiving ourselves. I see your question. I'm going to take it at the end, okay? <clears throat> the, the Bible is very clear that man is very good at deceiving his own self. He says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what does he mean if he say we have no sin? Is he saying, if I say that I, if I go out and I smoke a joint or I get stoned on marijuana and then I go back and I tell somebody, I didn't get stoned on marijuana. Is that what he's talking about there? No, I think the word sin there is singular. Go with me over to Romans real quick. Romans <clears throat> chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at... Um, Is that the right chapter? I'm looking for through one man sin into the world and death by sin. Five twelve. Thank you, Mike. Brilliant. Perfect. Chapter 5, verse 12. <clears throat> wherefore, Romans 5, 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed on all men, for that all have sinned. All right? So how did sin come into the world? By who? One man. Just by one man. It only took one man to bring sin into the world. How did death come into the world? Through sin. Man, man, then sin, and then death. All right? Verse 13. For until the law... Sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there was no law. In other words, by man sin entered the world, but if you didn't have something over here saying, this is wrong, don't do this, you can't do that, this is wrong. The sin is there, but we don't know what sin is until something, the law, tells us what sin is. All right? We know that sin is existent because there is death in the world. All right? But we don't know what sin is until the law was brought. And so what Paul is saying here is, is the only reason why the law was brought, because we know people were dying from the time of Adam and Eve after people died. 
But according to Paul, why did they die? They died because of sin, right? They died because of sin. So death was the result of sin, but we didn't know what sin was. So people are like, why are we dying? Why are we dying? The law comes and says, this is why you're dying. The law says, if you do this, you will die. If you do this, you will die. So the law actually frames, puts a framework around what sin is. All right. So then the reason why God did that, Paul comes and says it's a schoolmaster so that man and woman would cry out and say, well, I must need a deliverer then. If this is what sin is and I can't stop doing it, what's going to save me? And Paul says, thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken sin from us, who's paid the price or the penalty for sin, right? right. Now, how do we know, how do we know that the how do we know that sin or the penalty for sin has been removed? Because Christ was raised from the dead and we have life after death. If by one man <coughs> sin came into the world, death is a result of that sin. We didn't know why we died, but Paul says we were dying because of sin. Didn't really know what sin was until the law came. Jesus Christ comes. He removes sin. And the proof that he removes sin is he was raised from the dead. So death no longer reigns. So through one man's sin entered the world, death as a result of that sin, through one man's sin was removed from the world, and life was brought forth. All right? And that's what he's saying here. So look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead. In other words, I, we die today because of Adam. Much more than the grace of God or the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to many. So what Paul and John are linking together here is, is the reason why we must say that we have sin is because if we don't acknowledge that we have sin, we can't acknowledge that we have redemption or that we need it. And if you don't acknowledge redemption, then you don't acknowledge resurrection. See, that's why we have to acknowledge sin. Because if you say, I not only am I a sinner, it's not the bad things that I do. It's who I am by nature. Right. You see, according to the Bible, my little boy, when he was born as a sinner, the Bible says I was conceived in iniquity or sin. You know, sin is not what you do. It's who you are. All right. It's the nature of sin. So what Christ has come to do is he's come to remove the nature, the old nature of sin and put in a new nature of his spirit. Amen. Now, back to what John was saying, the reason why we have to acknowledge sin is because if we don't acknowledge sin, we don't receive redemption. And if we don't receive redemption, we don't receive resurrection. 
All right? So you got one man, sin and death. You got one man, redemption, life. All right? Or resurrection. And that's why it's so important. That's why John is like, hey, if you say that you have no sin, you make him a liar. Why do you make God a liar if you say I have no sin? Because if you say you had no sin, what in the world did Jesus go through all that suffering for? It's like crucifying him afresh by saying you're not a sinner, you don't need redemption. That's not right. All right. So... That's all I'm, as far as I'm going to go tonight. I'm not going to get to my favorite verses in the Bible, but, um, we ran out of time. But I hope you got something out of that tonight.